This EHIV Review Podcast is presented by DKB Med Radio. For a person like this who has multi-class drug resistance, I aim for the most active combination of drugs available, and my goal is, is usually three active drugs or more, and that often involves piecing together partially active medications, and pretty quickly the regimen can develop a relatively high pill burden. New clinical options for treatment experienced patients. Welcome to EHIV Review. When treatment experienced patients develop resistance associated mutations, their clinicians need to customize a treatment regimen that balances efficacy with tolerability and adherence. Which ARV combinations are most likely to do that? How can new and in development agents help? That's what we're here to talk about today. Our guest is Dr. Brian Wood from the Division of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the University of Washington in Seattle. For Dr. Wood's disclosures and additional CME information, please go to our website, ehivreview.org, and select the Volume 7, Issue 12 link. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of EHIV Review. Dr. Wood, thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. Let's start right in with our first learning objective. Explain the potential use of the NNRTI Duravarine for treatment-experienced individuals, including those with a history of specific NNRTI resistance-associated mutations, or RAMs. So take us to the clinic, if you would please, Dr. Wood, and start us out with a patient scenario. Sure, thank you. Let's consider a 45-year-old cisgender woman with HIV who presents to discuss new ARV treatment options. She previously took a Favrin's emtricitabine tenofovir DF, but she struggled with adherence on and off due to worsened nightmares and depression. She developed a virologic failure with evidence of the K103N NNRTI mutation, which causes resistance to a Favrin's, along with the M184V and K65R NRTI mutations. These cause resistance to both of the NRTI components in the combination tablet she was taking, along with some other effects. She also takes a proton pump inhibitor for severe GERD with Barrett's esophagus. So our focus on this case will be would Doravarine, a relatively new NNRTI, be an option as part of a new regimen for her, and what potential benefits would it offer? Doravarine is a newer NNRTI. When is it most often used? Duravarine is indeed an NNRTI. It's the most recent one to be approved, and it's an interesting drug. It was studied as a part of initial ART, but in clinical practice, I have almost never used it as first line for a treatment-naive individual. In the U.S., we more commonly use it for treatment-experienced individuals or as part of salvage ART. While Duravarine is not currently part of first-line recommended ART options in the United States, it has been added to first-line recommended options in the European guidelines. I would say I reach for it much more commonly for treatment-experienced individuals or for part of salvage ART. Why would you consider Duravarine in this case? Duravarine offers several potential advantages over other NNRTIs. For example, deravirine dosing is once daily, which makes it different than etravirine. There are no interactions with 
PPIs and no meal requirement, unlike ropivirine. Also, it doesn't seem to have the mental health or central nervous system side effects of efavirenz. And then perhaps most importantly for treatment-experienced individuals, deraverine retains high-level antiviral activity in the setting of some specific NNRTI resistance mutations. For example, it would retain full antiviral activity in the case we presented, despite resistance that had developed to efavirenz. Has deraverine been compared to the integrase inhibitors? Is there evidence, and what does it say? Well, it's a really good question. I think a major limitation of the randomized clinical trials of deraverine as first-line ART is those studies did not compare it head-to-head to the integrase inhibitors. That said, one thing that has come to light since the approval of deraverine is it might offer an advantage over the integrase inhibitor options in terms of the effects on weight and on metabolic syndrome. There are now numerous observations showing that an integrase inhibitor, especially dolutegravir or bictegravir, and especially if those drugs are combined with tenofovir alafenamide or TAF, may lead to greater weight gain and possibly more cardiovascular or metabolic complications such as diabetes as compared to other antiretroviral agents or classes. On the other hand, deraverine for the data we have so far, appears to be more weight or metabolic neutral. Chloe Orkin and colleagues reviewed the weight changes that occurred in all the randomized clinical trials of deraverine for treatment-naive individuals and found it really did not have a major impact on weight or BMI. Changes in both of those parameters were relatively small and not significantly different from adults without HIV. However, again, there was no direct comparison to integrase inhibitors. Another important reminder that I want to highlight is that the combination tablet with deraverine combines the drug with tenofovir DF or TDF, not with tenofovir alafenamide or TAF. This could be seen as a disadvantage when considering other possible side effects, like side effects to the kidneys or to the bones. Overall, I would say deraverine is an intriguing alternative to integrase inhibitors. It may have an advantage of more neutral effects on weight and cardiometabolic parameters and side effects, but we really need more studies comparing the various drugs and options. And we need to weigh this potential advantage of deraverine to the overall higher barrier to resistance and more potent antiviral activity of dolutegravir and bictegravir, which some individuals really tolerate well. So there's a lot to consider here, and we really need to understand this better, in my opinion. Briefly, I'll just mention one study that might help us understand this better and might shed some light on these comparisons. There is an ongoing trial called ACTG5391, or the DO-IT study, which is comparing continued use of an integrase inhibitor with TAF for individuals who have gained substantial weight on that option to a switch to deraverine, either with or without a switch from TAF to TDF. So I'm hopeful that trial will shed more light on the pros and cons of the various options, deraverine versus the integrase inhibitors, and then TAF versus TDF. Well, thank you, doctor. Let's return to the patient you brought us. Why would deraverine be effective as part of the combination therapy in this patient? What does the evidence say? 
So in this scenario with someone who has developed neurologic failure and an NNRTI mutation, we need to consider the activity of deraverine in the setting of already established NNRTI resistance. It's important to note that prior to approval of deraverine, it was demonstrated in lab studies that the drug had activity against viral strains with certain NNRTI resistance mutations. In other words, viral strains with resistance to drugs like afavirenz, nevirapine, and rilpivirine. Specifically, it was shown that deraverine retained high-level antiviral activity in the presence of K103N, Y181C, or G190A mutations, or in those lab studies, it also retained activity if a strain had a combination K103N and Y181C. So there are specific mutations in which it was demonstrated that deraverine retained high-level activity. Now, that was in the lab. I do think it's important to acknowledge that clinical trial data for deraverine efficacy in this setting for individuals with NNRTI resistance is pretty limited. I'll mention two studies that exist that show how limited data are. There was one study called Drive Shift, which enrolled individuals who had suppressed viral loads while taking regimens with a boosted PI, boosted L-vitegravir, or an alternate NNRTI and then randomized those participants to either continue their baseline regimen or switch to the deraverine combination, the deraverine TDF3TC. And in this trial, there were 24 participants who had one of the NNRTI mutations that I mentioned and who switched to the deraverine combination. And those participants did very well and a very high proportion maintained virologic suppression, but that's overall a pretty small N. There was also a study called Drive Beyond, in which investigators attempted to enroll a larger number of people with those specific NNRTI mutations. They enrolled treatment-naive individuals with transmitted NNRTI resistance. However, enrollment was challenging, and they only ended up enrolling 10 individuals with those mutations they were looking for. And of those individuals, not all completed the study. But those participants who had those NNRTI mutations of interest and took deraverine did and completed the study did quite well. This is, you know, an N of 34 or less in the clinical trials who took deraverine in the setting of a K103N, Y181C, or G190A. But overall, this is very reassuring, they did quite well. So I would just say that while clinical trial experience is limited, it is reassuring. And I would also add that my clinical experience has been that deraverine tends to retain high-level activity and be useful in these situations. I've done this in clinical practice, and I do generally feel comfortable using the drug in this situation with one of these specific NNRTI mutations or a combination of these specific NNRTI mutations, especially if there are other potent active drugs in the regimen. Should our listeners assume that deraverine is a treatment option for any person with past ART experience and any NNRTI mutation? That's an excellent question, and the answer is no, that cannot be assumed. It's important to note that while deraverine retains high-level activity in the setting of some specific NNRTI resistance mutations, there are other NNRTI mutations that severely reduce its activity, so it's important to know the specific mutations. For example, if a person took a favorins and the only NNRTI mutation is 
K103N, which is a very common mutation, Duravarine will work fine. If a person had virologic failure on a combination with ropivirine and the only mutation that developed was the E138K, which is the most common ropivirine mutation, then Duravarine is also probably fine. There's less data, but it still retains pretty high level activity. But let's compare that to the situation where a person took a past NNRTI, whether it was nevirapine, favarins, ropivirine, or etravirine, and they developed other mutations. Specifically, the ones I really worry about with Duravarine are mutations at position 188, 230, 106, or a combination of such mutations. In that situation, Duravarine would not be an option because those mutations significantly compromise its activity. In particular, the Y188L is a mutation that severely compromises Duravarine activity. And that is one that I certainly have seen in clinical practice. The important take-home message here is that the antiviral activity of Duravarine really depends on how many mutations have accumulated and which specific mutations. For Duravarine, it's very important to always review every past genotype or phenotype resistance test that's available and consider a composite of all past resistance testing. It's also important to consider the activity of the other available options for a person who has developed virologic failure and resistance and for whom you're designing a salvage regimen. There are situations in which I may reach for Duravarine even if low or medium level resistance has developed. For example, if there are few other active antiretroviral agents to offer. Can Duravarine be combined with other ARV options? Yes, it can. That's an important point, and there is no issue combining Duravarine with ARVs from other classes, including other salvage ARVs that we will be discussing. So for the patient in the case we discussed, for example, Duravarine could be combined with dolutegravir or with boosted darunavir, and if the viral load is suppressed or low, using one of those combinations might be sufficient or for a case like this, in my clinic, I might offer Bictegravir, TAF-FTC as a combination pill, plus Duravarine, which would give two active drugs plus recycled NRTIs, which can be of benefit. Contraindications to Duravarine. Uh, talk to us about those, if you would, please. There are a few contraindications to Duravarine. One is drug interactions. For example, rifampin, rifapentine, and other strong CYP3A4 inducers, certain antiepileptics, for example, or St. John's wort would be contraindicated. Also, I'll note there are to date insufficient safety data for Duravarine use during pregnancy or breastfeeding. One important factor and take home point is that renal insufficiency is not a contraindication to Duravarine use, uh, including severe renal insufficiency. So that is a plus to the drug. There are not a lot of data on use of Duravarine during hemodialysis, but there is some. There are case reports of successful use of Duravarine in combination with other ARVs during dialysis. So while these data are rather scant, they certainly do argue that Duravarine is an option for renal insufficiency, including severe renal impairment and likely also dialysis. The other thing I would say is while Duravarine has a unique resistance profile, 
and probably a higher barrier to resistance development than other NNRTIs, the barrier to resistance is not as high as a boosted PI or as dolutegravir or bictegravir. So if you are seeing someone in clinic and considering a switch from one of those agents with very high barrier to resistance, it's important to make sure the remainder of the regimen is fully active. Thank you for bringing us this case, Dr. Wood. Let's review our conversation through the lens of our learning objective. Explain the potential use of the NNRTI Duravarine for treatment-experienced individuals, including those with a history of specific NNRTI resistance-associated mutations. What are the key things our listeners should take away from this discussion? So the take-home messages. First, remember that Duravarine retains high-level antiviral activity and clinical effectiveness as part of an ART regimen in the setting of some NNRTI resistance mutations, but not all. So always review past ART and resistance test history before prescribing Duravarine. Make sure there are no mutations that would significantly compromise its activity. Next, I would keep in mind the advantages of Duravarine over other NNRTIs. It's once daily, has no meal requirement, no PPI interaction. It's okay with renal insufficiency. But also remember, it doesn't have as high a barrier to resistance as drugs like boosted darunavir, dolutegravir, and bictegravir. Again, don't forget to check drug-drug interactions. Duravarine can be combined with many, but not all other drugs. And especially watch out for strong CYP3A4 inducers. And then stay tuned for new data in the future about whether Duravarine offers benefit over integrase inhibitors for weight change and for metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular risk. Thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Brian Wood from the University of Washington in just a moment. Health equality, and in particular, racial disparities in healthcare, has become a growing concern and with good reason. The evidence shows that African-Americans are disproportionately impacted by HIV, with new HIV diagnosis rates eight times higher than whites. Prescriptions for PrEP also lag behind. What are the barriers to HIV treatment equality, and how can we overcome them? One step towards that answer is Fade Out HIV, an on-demand webinar hosted by Dr. William King, a Los Angeles primary care physician known nationally and internationally for his work in HIV-AIDS and his research on racial disparities and access to HIV care and treatment. The CME-accredited Fade Out HIV webinar is provided by DKB Med in partnership with the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, supported by Gilead Sciences, and is free of charge. Visit fade.dkbmed.com to watch the on-demand video. Welcome back to this EHIV Review Podcast. Our guest is Dr. Brian Wood from the Division of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the University of Washington in Seattle. We've been talking about what clinicians need to know when considering Duravarine for treatment-experienced individuals with a history of specific NNRTI RAMs. I'd like to turn now to our second learning objective, the use of newer salvage antiviral agents as part of combination therapy for heavily treatment-experienced individuals with multi-class drug resistance. Uh, so with that in mind, if you would please, Dr. Wood, take us back to the clinic with another patient scenario. Sure. Let's consider a 62-year-old cisgender man who was diagnosed with HIV in the early 1990s and who presents for a follow-up visit. He received a long list of prior ARVs, including 
NRTI mono and dual therapy in the early years of ART. More recently, he received a boosted protease inhibitor, the fusion inhibitor, and fuvertide, and the integrase inhibitor raltegravir. Though the twice daily dosing of infuvertide and raltegravir was difficult and he struggled with injection site reactions from infuvertide, genotype resistance testing demonstrates multi class drug resistance, including resistance to NRTIs and NRTIs, integrase inhibitors, and protease inhibitors, and of note, that includes significant darunavir resistance. A tropism assay shows the HIV to be dual or mixed tropic. And the most recent HIV RNA level or viral load was just over 2,000 copies. So the question and challenge becomes what antiretroviral options exist for this individual? Uh, before we get to that, a quick question. How common have you found this scenario to be? Well, I would just say it is not common. It is not the typical scenario that we see in clinic these days. However, it certainly does happen. I have seen patients like this, and for these individuals with very few options, as you can imagine, it is uh, very high stakes, and there are a lot of important considerations when selecting a new regimen. Tell us about your general approach and management strategy for an individual like this. Well, I'd say I typically try to create the most active regimen possible. If a person has HIV drug resistance, but one of the ARVs that has a relatively high barrier to resistance is still fully active, the dolutegravir or bucidronavir, for example, then I really aim for at least one additional fully active agent. That's my goal. Some individuals do okay with less, but that's my goal, at least one additional fully active agent. That's my general strategy for someone who's developed virologic failure and resistance. That said, for a person like this who has multi-class drug resistance, including resistance to meds that have the highest barrier to resistance, like darunavir, I'm usually pretty conservative and I aim for the most active combination of drugs available. And my goal is, is usually three active drugs or more in a situation like this. As you can imagine, that often involves piecing together partially active medications, and pretty quickly the regimen can develop a relatively high pill burden and can be difficult to take, and sometimes, as we will discuss, involves receiving a regimen that is not oral and requires parenteral administration. Brief us, if you would, please, about the newest available ART options. Well, let's discuss two key relatively new options, those being fostemsevir and ibilizumab. These are important drugs to consider in a situation like this because they each have a completely novel mechanism of action, meaning a mechanism of action that is completely different than all the other drugs the patient would have taken before. So these drugs, because of this novel mechanism of action, would be presumed to be fully active. So let's take first, for example, fostemsevir. Fostemsevir is a prodrug, and the active metabolite binds to the HIV envelope GP120 subunit or glycoprotein. And by doing this, it prevents the attachment of the HIV virus to the host CD4 T cell receptor. So it is generally described as an attachment inhibitor. Okay, check my facts on this, please, Dr. Wood. I've heard fostemsevir also called a pre-attachment inhibitor. Is that right? That's correct. And I think it's a good way to conceptualize the mechanism of action of fostemsevir. The 
active metabolite, as I mentioned, blocks the attachment step, meaning attachment of HIV virus to the CD4 receptor. And it does this by binding to the HIV GP120 subunit before attachment occurs. I got it. Thank you, doctor. And what about ipilizumab? So let's contrast ibilizumab to fostemsevir. Ibilizumab basically blocks the next step in the HIV life cycle. It binds to the CD4 receptor after GP120 attaches. And once it binds, it prevents the conformational changes that are required for fusion and entry of HIV into the CD4 cell. So for this reason, it is sometimes called a post-attachment inhibitor. Now, I do want to highlight that both drugs are classified as entry inhibitors, but they have unique mechanisms of action and can be used together, and they have different mechanisms than the other entry inhibitors that are available, like Maraviroc and Infuvertide. Also, these two drugs, Fostemsevir and Ibilizumab, do not depend on HIV tropism, unlike Maraviroc. These newer agents, how likely are they to work in a case like the one you presented? Is there evidence, and what does it say? So I think they are likely to work. One important point, again, is they do have a different mechanism of action to other drugs that a person like this took in the past. But also, I would highlight that there are randomized clinical trials supporting use of these drugs. So both Fostemsevir and Ibilizumab were studied in phase three randomized clinical trials, both trials published in the New England Journal, and both trials included or enrolled heavily treatment-experienced individuals with multi-class drug resistance and very few treatment options. So these trials were indeed reflective of the patient case we presented. Now, I'll make a couple important notes about these studies. In the trial of ibilizumab, participants had to have at least one additional fully active ARV to receive as part of their optimized background regimen, which is the meds given with ibilizumab. And then in the Fostemsevir trial, there was a randomized cohort in which all participants had at least one active agent in their optimized background regimen. There was also a non-randomized cohort that included participants who did not have a fully active regimen to be included. But then the results data showed that individuals with more active drugs in their background regimen had better virologic response and better outcomes. So for these reasons, I always try to combine these agents with at least one additional fully active ARV if possible, and ideally more. And these agents are always given with an optimized background regimen, never as monotherapy. So we always combine them with the most active combination of additional ARVs that we can. Finally, one last point about these drugs, if a person is missing doses of either these meds or the other agents in their regimen, that person can develop resistance to these drugs. For example, in the phase three trial of Fostemsevir, individuals who missed doses of the regimen and developed virologic rebound did often develop mutations in GP120 and thus resistance to Fostemsevir. So these drugs are not free from the issues with adherence and resistance. What downsides of these ART salvage drugs do clinicians need to be concerned about? For ibilizumab, the most obvious downside is it requires every two-week IV infusions, which can be logistically challenging. 
The drug also may have some side effects such as diarrhea, but overall it tends to be pretty well tolerated. Most side effects seen in clinical practice are mild to moderate. Now for fostemsevir, there aren't a lot of side effects to discuss. In clinical practice, I've generally found it to be a well-tolerated drug, but it does require BID oral dosing, which some individuals are fine with, but can be challenging for some in my experience. And again, misdoses can lead to resistance to the drug. There are also a few drug-drug interactions to be aware of. Again, strong CYP3A4 inducers can lower its levels and are contraindicated. Uh, in addition, Fostemsevir raises levels of statins a bit. Statins aren't contraindicated, but it's recommended to use the lowest possible starting dose of the statin and monitor for possible statin toxicity. It's also recommended to be cautious when combining Fostemsevir with other medications that may prolong the QTC interval or cause torsades. It was found early on in development that supratherapeutic concentrations of Fostemsevir could cause QT prolongation, so caution is advised when combining it with other drugs that may prolong the QT. Thank you, doctor. Other options for individuals with extensive multi-class drug resistance, like the patient you brought us. What's in development that might become available near-term? I think we should talk about lenacapavir, a really fascinating and promising drug that is not yet approved in the U.S., but has been studied for heavily treatment-experienced individuals and, of note, has been approved for this indication in Europe. Now, this drug, lenacapavir, has a very long half-life, and what may become available is both an oral and a long-acting injectable formulation, and the injectable formulation requires administration subcutaneously only every six months. So clearly that could be a big advantage. It's been studied for heavily treatment-experienced individuals, for individuals who are treatment-naive and also is being studied as a potential pre-exposure prophylaxis. Lenacapavir is another agent from a totally new class with a totally novel new mechanism of action. So that's another important point to remember about it. Lenacapavir is in a class of its own called the capsid inhibitor, and it actually blocks multiple steps of the HIV life cycle. This includes disassembly of the capsid, which is the conical structure that houses the viral DNA, and then also other steps like transport of DNA into the cell nucleus and then reassembly of the capsid and viral maturation or generation of new virions. So again, novel mechanism of action and a drug that blocks multiple steps in the HIV life cycle. Now, interestingly, development was put on hold for a while due to concern about compatibility of the drug with the vials used to store it, but this has now been addressed and development has resumed, and I think we may see approval of this drug in the U.S. in the near future. There is another long-acting drug with a novel mechanism of action called islatravir, which is an NRTTI, nucleoside reverse transcriptase translocation inhibitor. But clinical studies of this drug are now on hold due to a signal for reduced CD4 levels and lymphopenia in participants of the trials who were receiving it. And it is unclear at this point whether we will see development of Islatravir resume or not. Thank you for bringing us this case in discussion, Dr. Wood. Let's wrap things up by returning to our learning objective. 
described the use of newer salvage antiretroviral agents as part of combination therapy for heavily treatment-experienced individuals with multi-class drug resistance. What are the key things our listeners need to know? So several key take-home points. First, fostemsevir and ibilizumab are two agents in the entry inhibitor class. Both have unique mechanisms of action and generally are reserved for patients with heavy treatment experience and multi-class drug resistance. There are other new drugs in development that have other completely novel mechanisms of action and also are long-acting, such as lenacapavir, which is a drug that I think we are likely to see in the future and will offer an additional salvage agent for individuals with multi-class drug resistance. Finally, when crafting a salvage ART regimen, remember that these options can be combined together and that they are always combined with other drugs to create a fully active regimen. So these are tough cases, and I will end by saying that if you are seeing such cases, consultation with an expert uh, experienced in drug resistance and creating salvage regimens is generally advised. From the University of Washington, Dr. Brian Wood, thank you for sharing your expertise in this eHIV Review podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. For eHIV Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ehiv.dkbmed.com. EHIV Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Janssen, and Vive Healthcare. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. EHIV Review is copyright, with all rights reserved, by DKP Med LLC. Thank you for listening.